Wesley Brown, and uh, it's my privilege to introduce uh, this evening's program uh, in celebration of black American letters. Uh, I'd like to make a couple of announcements before we begin. The first is that uh, there, uh, if you want to smoke, uh, we'd appreciate if you uh, would smoke out in the uh, lobby and not in the sanctuary. The other uh, announcement is that uh, we would appreciate if you would not take photographs uh, while the uh, readers are reading. Thank you. Um, I guess as by way of um, beginning um, the introduction, I would like to uh, tell a story. And the story uh, is a, a bit a field or a drift from uh, the black experience, but I think it bears on, uh, by extension, uh, the American experience. And it, it's a story that was told, um, that I heard from uh, Herbert Gutman, his, the historian. And he, the story goes uh, somewhat like this, that there were two women, um, Jews from Eastern Europe who were sitting around in a, and one of their sons had come to America and they were still in Eastern Europe and they were talking about how the son had been faring in, um, in, in America at around that point at the, uh, after the turn of the century. And uh, one woman asked the other, uh, well, how, how is your son doing? He said, he's fine, he's doing quite well. And the other woman said, well, what does he do? And the woman, uh, the son's mother said, uh, he's a czar. And the woman said, well, how can a Jew be a czar? And the mother responded, well, in America, anything is possible. Now, I think that um, that, um, I think the point that Gutman had made after telling the story that was that while this is, that story is not very good history, it is a very American story. Uh, you might say quintessential American story in that it uh, says something about what we are as a nation in terms of, I guess, uh, the boundless optimism for better or worse that we uh, seem to have. And that my feeling is that what is invaluable about the particulars of any group experience is what it tells us about who and what we are as a nation. And Afro-American literature has always carried on a discussion of the fundamental dilemma of this nation, which is the meaning of democracy. And I believe that this evening, we are fortunate to have three of the foremost interpreters of our national experience who will be reading from the work of writers who have profoundly altered the way we see ourselves and our relationship to this diverse, sometimes generous, often mean-spirited and befuddling nation we call the United States of America. The readers for this evening's program are David Bradley, Gloria Foster, and Michael Harper, and they will be reading in that order. David Bradley is the author of 
South Street and the Cheneysville incident, a novel that I believe is one of the most powerful evocations of the black experience that we have. It is the recipient of the 1981 Penn Faulkner Award for Fiction. David Bradley is an associate professor of English at Temple University. He was judged for the 1984 Penn Faulkner Award, a nominating juror for the 1984 Pulitzer Prize for Fiction, and is a member of the Literature Advisory Panel of the National Endowment for the Arts. David Bradley will read from the work of W.E.B. Du Bois, Frederick Douglass, James Baldwin, Gene Toomer, and Vincent Harding. David Bradley. I brought my own water. <clears throat> it's a pleasure to be here tonight. This is a beautiful place. Um, the only trouble is it's a church. And I'm always worried when I set foot in a church. My daddy was a preacher, and my granddaddy was a preacher, and my great-granddaddy was a preacher, and I am not a preacher. And before my father died, I said to him, uh, Pop, I'm, I'm, you know, I, I hope you're not disappointed that I did not become a preacher. And he said to me, he was on his last, but he said to me, I'm not disappointed, but... I am disappointed, but I'm sure God is not. Um, so anyway, so I always worry whenever I step into a pulpit. Um, that long list of people that you heard, I, I should explain. I'm not going to read a whole lot from every one of them. You won't sit still that long. Uh, the trouble is that when I first got this assignment, I thought it was wonderful. You know, you go back and read all the old books that you read and say, hey, you know, that'd be great, you know, all the stuff that you underline. When I went back and looked at those old books, I discovered that I had underlined a great deal and uh, was forced to weed things out. I mean, originally I was thinking, well, I'll read a couple of white folks, but they got off the train at Trenton. Um, there just wasn't enough room, and other people got off the train between Trenton and Newark, um, Julius Lester, uh, June Jordan, Alice Walker, and a number of others. Go to the library. Uh, what we have here is a sample. Um, I thought to begin with that, uh, I mean, uh, you gotta, you got to understand about Wesley. Wesley was a judge for the Penn Faulkner Award the year I won it. <clears throat> I'm sure there's no connection, but um, he has to say those nice things. Uh, he, people in Penn, I suppose a lot of you are in Penn, sort of have this inflated notion of what a Penn Award, I mean, you know, I'm, you think, I mean, they think that maybe you know who I am and why I'm here, but you probably don't. I came across many years ago um, a statement of who I was and what I wanted to do with my life uh, by somebody else, which is rather strange. And I'd like to read part of this to you tonight. It's edited a little bit. I didn't change anything. I just sort of took a paragraph here and there and moved it. I didn't move it. I just cut it out. Um, like I said, you won't sit still that long. But it's from the autobiographical notes of James Baldwin's Notes of a Native Son. Any writer, I suppose, feels that the world into which he was born is nothing less than a conspiracy against the cultivation of his talent, which attitude certainly has a great deal to support it. 
On the other hand, it is only because the world looks on his talent with such frightening indifference that the artist is compelled to make his talent important. So that any writer, looking back over even a so short a span of time as I am here forced to assess, finds that the things which hurt him and the things which helped him cannot be divorced from each other. He could be helped in a certain way only because he was hurt in a certain way. And his help is simply to be, to be enabled to move from one conundrum to the next. One is tempted to say that he moves from one disaster to the next. When one begins looking for the influences, one finds them by the score. I haven't thought much about my own. Not enough, anyway. I hazard that the King James Bible, the rhetoric of the storefront church, and something ironic and violent and perpetually understated in Negro speech, and something of Dickens' love for bravura, have something to do with me today, but I wouldn't stake my life on it. Likewise, innumerable people have helped me in many ways. But finally, I suppose, the most difficult and most rewarding thing in my life has been the fact that I was born a Negro and was forced, therefore, to effect some kind of truce with this reality. Truce, by the way, is the best one can hope for. One of the difficulties about being a Negro writer, and this is not a special pleading, since I don't mean to suggest that he has it any worse than anybody else, is that the Negro problem is written about so widely. The bookshelves groan under the weight of information, and everyone, therefore, considers himself informed. And this information, furthermore, operates usually, generally, popularly, to reinforce traditional attitudes. Of traditional attitudes, there are only two, for or against. And I personally find it difficult to say which attitude has caused me the most pain. I am speaking as a writer. From a social point of view, I am perfectly aware that the change from ill will to goodwill, however motivated, however imperfect, however expressed, is better than no change at all. About my interests, I don't know if I have any, unless the morbid desire to own a 16-millimeter camera and make experimental movies can be so classified. Otherwise, I love to eat and drink. It's my melancholy conviction that I've scarcely ever had enough to eat. This is because it's impossible to eat enough if you're worried about the next meal. And I love to argue with people who do not disagree with me too profoundly, and I love to laugh. I do not like Bohemia or Bohemians. I do not like people whose principal aim is pleasure, and I do not like people who are earnest about anything. I don't like people who like me because I'm a Negro. Neither do I like people who find, it in the, find in the same accident grounds for contempt. I love America more than any other country in the world, and exactly for this reason, I insist on the right to criticize her perpetually. I think all the theories are suspect, that the finest principles may have to be modified or may even be pulverized by the demands of life, and that one must find, therefore, one's own moral center and move through the world hoping that this center will guide one aright. I consider that I have many responsibilities, but none greater than this, to last, as Hemingway says, and get my work done. I want to be an honest man and a good writer. That's supposed to be James Baldwin, but it's really me. In the uh, process of trying to do those things, I came across rather odd poems. This was in the 60s. I'd, in a couple of days, I have to go out to Indiana and talk to a group of young students who are, I guess, 18, 19 years old. They're having a seminar on the 60s. And I don't know if this frightens you, but it 
scares the hell out of me. Um, it's frightening to realize that this world changes so fast that one can be a fossil before one's dead. You know, They're going to be looking at me saying, wow, you were there in the 60s. Well, I wasn't really. I was, I was born in 1950, and I sort of got in the tail end of the whole business. And I got there at the time when everything was getting real strange. And we won't go into all the strangeness, but in that period, I discovered this poem that sort of said some of the things that I was feeling. It's by a guy named Edward S. Spriggs, who I understand is in Atlanta. Wesley told me. Um, it's called For the Truth Because It's Necessary. In the tea rooms of our revolution, we blatantly debate our knowledge of the world's revolts. Our anxious ears only half listened to the songs of the Martinique, who sings in muffled tones from beneath a mechanized tombstone built by the pulp of greedy merchants who get stoned on the juice of our servitude and who write prefaces to our nigritude. From the tea rooms of our revolution, we emerge to pamphleteer the anticipatory designs of our dead and exiled poets without sanctions from our unsuspecting brothers whose death we so naively plot. We engage in hypothetical revolt against a not-so-hypothetical enemy. What kind of man are you, black revolutionary so-called? What kind of man are you trying to be, ultra-hip, revolutionary, nationalist, quasi-strategist, egocentric, phony, intellectual, romantic, black prima donna child, screaming, revolution means change, never finishing the sentence or the thought, talking about paramilitary strategy and techniques, publicizing a so-called underground program, as if you never heard of camouflage, so in love with intrigue you have no thoughts about the post-revolution life that the total destruction you talk about assumes. You leave me quite confused, brother. I don't know who the enemy is anymore. Perhaps it is me, myself, because I have these thoughts in the tea rooms of our revolution. In case I didn't mention that was Edward S. Briggs. Um, that was 1968, thereabouts, to leap back the better part of a century um, to a man who I sort of identify as, well, I won't say God, but if you're talking about being a writer in this country, uh, maybe, close. W.B. Du Bois wrote a book. I, mean, I, don't, I wonder sometimes, when I was a kid, I, my father, like I said, was a minister, and I remember the first time I went into a white church and they were talking about saving souls and it never occurred to me that white people had souls. I mean, it's just, just a weird thing. I was about four. Um, this man wrote a book called The Souls of Black Folk. I think that's where that whole concept of soul came from. Um, this is just a tiny little section. Uh, it's about the death of his firstborn son. And I'm reading it because at the time I first read it, it was the middle of the 60s, and I had somehow formed the notion in the back of my crazy head that black people wrote about politics all the time. Um, I guess you could say that this is about politics, but it's politics of a different sort. And so we dreamed and loved and planned by fall and winter and the full flush of the long southern spring till the hot winds rolled from the fetid gulf until the roses shivered and the still stern sun quivered in its awful light over the hills of Atlanta. And then one night, the little feet pattered wearily to the wee white bed, and the tiny hands trembled, and a warm, flushed face tossed on the pillow, and we knew baby was sick. 
Ten days he lay there, a swift week and three endless days, wasting, wasting away. Cheerily the mother nursed him the first days and laughed into the little eyes that smiled again. Tenderly then she hovered round him till the smile fled away and fear crouched beside the little bed. Then the day ended not, and night was a dreamless terror, and joy and sleep slipped away. I hear now that voice at midnight calling me from dull and dreamless trance, crying, the shadow of death, the shadow of death. Out into the starlight I crept to rouse the gray physician, the shadow of death, the shadow of death. The hours trembled on, the night listened. The ghastly dawn glided like a tired thing across the lamplight. Then we too alone looked upon the child as he turned toward us with great eyes and stretched his string-like hands, the shadow of death. And we spoke no word and turned away. He died at eventide when the sun lay like a brooding sorrow above the western hills, veiling its face. When the winds spoke not and the trees, the great green trees he loved, stood motionless. I saw his breath beat quicker and quicker, pause, and then his little soul leapt like the star that travels in the night and left the world of darkness in its train. The day changed not. The same tall trees peeped in at the windows, the same green grass glinted in the setting sun. Only in the chamber of death arrived the world's most piteous thing, a childish mother. I shirk not. I long for work. I pant for a life full of striving. I am no coward to shrink before the rugged rush of the storm, nor even quail before the awful shadow of the veil. But hearken, O death, is not this my life hard enough? Is not that dull land that stretches its sneering web about me cold enough? Is not all the world beyond these four little walls pitiless enough that thou must needs enter here, thou, O death? About my head the thundering storm beat like a heartless voice, and the crazy forest pulsed with the curses of the weak. But what cared I within my home beside my wife and baby boy? Was thou so jealous of one little coin of happiness that thou must needs enter there, thou, O death? Two very short quotations. Um, one from Frederick Douglass and... Uh, First from Frederick Douglass. Those who profess to favor freedom yet deprecate agitation are men who want crops without plowing the ground. They want rain without the thunder and lightning. They want the ocean without the awful roar of its many waters. Power concedes nothing without demand. The limits of tyrants are prescribed by the endurance of those whom they oppress. Uh, I include that because I've just spent two days in Washington, D.C. Uh, this next short quotation is from a man named Abraham Camp. Unlike the others, uh, none of you probably ever heard of him. He explains sort of who he is, but he wrote this letter to a thing called the American Colonization Society, which was the first organization uh, dedicated to sending the niggers back to Africa. It was started in Virginia, which ought to tell you something about that idea. Uh, they didn't send slaves, of course. They only sent free blacks who caused trouble, but that's another story. This letter was written to the American Colonization Society in 1818. I am a free man of color. 
have a family and a large connection of free people of color residing along the Wabash who are all ready to leave America whenever the way shall be opened. We love this country and its liberties if we could but share an equal part in them, but our freedom is partial, and we have no hope that it will ever be otherwise here. Therefore, we had rather be gone, although we should suffer hunger and nakedness for years. America, as Wesley said, is really interesting that he should say what he said, because America is a, is a real problem. I mean, I live uh, and work in the constant knowledge that life is tough, but um, if I was white, what would I write about? I guess bears and wrestling. Um, You've got to admit, it makes for great material. Um, Claude McKay wrote a poem called America, and uh, this is, it's, I always laugh when anybody assumes that a black person who criticizes America doesn't love it. Although she feeds me bread of bitterness and sinks into my throat her tiger's tooth, stealing my breath of life, I will confess I love this cultured hell that tests my youth. Her vigor flows like tides into my blood, giving me strength erect against her hate. Her bigness sweeps my being like a flood. Yet, as a rebel fronts a king and state, I stand within her walls with not a shred of terror, malice, not a word of jeer. Darkly I gaze into the days ahead and see her might and granite wonders there beneath the touch of time's unerring hand like priceless treasures sinking. In the sand. Should dedicate that to Ronald Reagan. Um, sort of a dark image, but to counter that, this is very contemporary. A guy named Vincent Harding. Uh, I should tell you, I hate Vincent Harding. If any of you are friends of Vincent Harding, um, I have exchanged words with Vincent Harding, but I haven't really explained to him why I hate him. And the reason that I hate him is about four or five years ago, I decided that I was going to start writing nonfiction, and I was inspired to start writing nonfiction by the work of W.B. Du Bois, and I thought, being me, I'm going to be the next W.B. Du Bois. I don't think small. Then somebody sent me a copy of a book called There is a River by this Vincent Harding, and I discovered that I was going to have to try to be the next Vincent Harding, because he'd already become the next uh, W.B. Du Bois. So I hate him, even though he's a nice guy and um, I think a beautiful writer. This is from just the introduction to There is a River, which is the first volume of his three-volume history of, well, I guess it has to do with black people in America, but I don't believe in that whole black history thing, so it's the, really a three-volume history of America. The dominant image, I should explain, in this book is that of a river. And it really is dominant. Now, pausing at the end of this first volume, considering the precarious terrain of our current lives, I am concerned about the one force that may surely stop the river, the self-destructiveness and despair that overwhelm us when we no longer know our course, no longer remember our origins. 
So I write in hope that some men and women will read the words and recognize that they, we, are the essential force, are the river, are the vision. I write trusting that some parents and grandparents and teachers will read aloud and share this with the children, will become new sources of memory, will remember, remind one another that our destination has always been a new transformed humanity, a new humanized society, not equal opportunity in a dehumanized one, will remember that we have come this far at great cost. This is the final risk of my work, this risk of hope. The only history I know is one that drives us into the future, moving like a river toward our best possible evolution. So I am willing to take this history of my people as a sign of all human possibility. I see the way we have come, the chains we have broken, the visions we have maintained as a broadside invitation to all people. Our history joins with that common hopeful element in all histories of human struggle for community and calls each of us to develop our great hidden capacities to dream, to imagine a new American society, to become full participants in its creation, bursting with our courage and hope the barriers of all the political, economic, and social institutions that now hold us in bondage to our worst selves. And the central question of our history is the question of our future. What kind of nation do we want? We know, of course, that there are no prefabricated answers to that question. Rather, they are most often the product of much study, experimentation, hard struggle, failure, and hope, beginning with the innermost levels of our lives. That is the center of the drama, the heart of the enveloping river. Now, as we dare to take responsibility for our own future as individuals and peoples, as we give up this fantasy that presidents or the best charismatic leaders can solve the most basic problems of our society, the moment of great possibility opens before us. Now some of us who were here for thousands of years, as well as some of us who came from Europe and from Asia, from Mexico and India, from Puerto Rico and the wide ranges of Latin America, may join with those children of Africa and the United States who remember their course. Together, we may stand in the river, transformed and transforming, listening to its laughter and burning with its tears, recognizing in that ancient flow the indelible marks of human blood, yet grounded and buoyed by hope, courage, and unfathomable, amazing grace. Keeping the faith, creating new faith, we may enter the terrible and magnificent struggle for the recreation of America. For all who seek that way, for all who join the compassionate seekers of the past and the future, I share this work of history as an act of solidarity and a testament of hope. Finally, I have to end with a poem by Gene Toomer. Gene Toomer has been much vilified, but he believed that there was something wonderful in slavery. I know some people say that's a little bit like saying great things happened in the concentration camps, but celebrating uh, the last slave is a little bit like celebrating the last survivor. This is a song called Song of the Sun, S-O-N. Poor, oh poor, that parting soul in song. Oh poor it in the sawdust glow of night into the velvet pine smoke air tonight and let the valley carry it along and let the valley carry it along. O land and soil, red soil and sweet gum tree, so scant of grass, so profligate of pines, now just before an epic sun declines, thy son in time I have returned to thee, thy son 
I have in time returned to thee. In time, for though the sun is setting on a song-lit race of slaves, it has not set. Though late, O soil, it is not too late yet to catch thy plaintive soul, leaving soon gone, leaving to catch thy plaintive soul soon gone. O Negro slaves, dark purple ripened plums squeezed and bursting in the pinewood air, passing before they stripped the old tree bare, one plum was saved for me. One seed becomes an everlasting song, a singing tree, caroling softly souls of slavery, what they were, what they are to me, caroling softly souls of slavery. Thank you. Gloria Foster has been described as the thespian equivalent of a flood, hurricane, and the San Andreas Fault. However, while these uh, superlatives are appropriate, they do not adequately convey the experience of a Gloria Foster performance. Her extraordinary acting range has been exemplified in such roles as Long Day's Journey into Night, The Cherry Orchard, Coriolanus, and Midsummer Night's Dream. She has received the Obie Award for her performances in, in White America and Medea, and the Odelco Award for her performances in Mother Courage and Her Children and Agamemnon. She has also appeared in the films Nothing But a Man, The Angel Levine, The Cool World, The File on Jill Hatch, and most recently, The Atlanta Child Murders. This evening, Gloria Foster will read from Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man. And it is fitting, I think, that on a Monday after a weekend that is usually stormy whether the elements are at work or not, that for medicinal purposes to give ourselves a lift, uh, that I would ask you to join me in allowing ourselves to be put under the care of Gloria Foster. Thank you very much. I chose Ralph Ellison's uh, Invisible Man because Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man was the first time that I knew that there was a black man of letters. I grew up in the Midwest in a predominantly white community went to white schools, were taught by white teachers. I was not taught that there were black men of letters. And when I discovered Ralph Ellison, it gave me a perspective. I could see the world in another light. I knew that there were two sides to everything. And I suppose I can say that Ralph Ellison told me who I am. 
I'd like to read for you from the, the eulogy, rather, of Todd Clifton. His name was Clifton, and they shot him down. His name was Clifton, and he was tall, and some folks thought him handsome. And though he didn't believe it, I think he was. His name was Clifton, and his face was black, and his hair was thick with tight rolled curls, or call them naps or kinks. He's dead, uninterested, and except to a few young girls, it doesn't matter. Have you got it? Can you see him? Think of your brother or your cousin John. His lips were thick with an upward curve at the corners. He often smiled. He had good eyes and a pair of fast hands, and he had a heart. He thought about things, and he felt deeply. I won't call him noble, because what's such a word to do with one of us? His name was Clifton, Todd Clifton, and like any man, he was born of woman to live a while and fall and die. So that's his tale to the minute. His name was Clifton, and for a while he lived among us and aroused a few hopes in the young manhood of man. And we knew him, loved him, and he died. So why are you waiting? You've heard it all. Why wait for more when all I can do is repeat it? They stood. They listened. They gave no sign. Very well, so I'll tell you. His name was Clifton, and he was young, and he was a leader, and when he fell, there was a hole in the heel of his sock, and when he stretched forward, he seemed not as tall as when he stood. So he died. And we who loved him are gathered here to mourn him. It's as simple as that and as short as that. His name was Clifton, and he was black, and they shot him. Isn't that enough to tell? Isn't it all you need to know? Isn't that enough to appease your thirst for drama and send you home to sleep it off? Go on, take a drink and forget it. Or read it in the Daily News. His name was Clifton, and they shot him, and I was there to see him fall, so I know it as I know it. Here are the facts. He was standing, and he fell. He fell, and he kneeled. He kneeled, and he bled. He bled, and he died. He fell in a heap like any man, and his blood spilled out like any blood. Red as any blood, wet as any blood, and reflecting the sky and the buildings and birds and trees, or your face if you looked into its darling mirror, and it dried in the sun as blood dries. That's all. They spilled his blood, and he bled. They cut him down and he died. The blood flowed on the walk and the pool, gleamed a while and after a while became dull, then dusty, then dried. That's the story, and that's how it ended. It's an old story. There's been too much blood to excite you. Besides, it's only important when it fills the veins of a living man. Aren't you tired of such stories? 
Aren't you sick of the blood? Then why listen? Why don't you go? It's hot out here. There's the odor of embalming fluid. The beer is cold in the taverns. The saxophones will be mellow in the Savoy. Plenty good laughing lies will be told in the barber shops and beauty parlors. And there'll be sermons in 200 churches in the cool of the evening and plenty of laughs at the movies. Go listen to Amos and Andy and forget it. Here you have only the same old story. There's not even a young wife up here in red to mourn him. There's nothing here to pity, no one to break down and shout, nothing to give you that good old frightened feeling. The story's too short and too simple. His name was Clifton, Todd Clifton. He was unarmed, and his death was as senseless as his life was futile. He had struggled for brotherhood on a hundred street corners, and he thought it would make him more human, but he died like any dog in a road. All right, all right, I called out, feeling desperate. It wasn't the way I wanted it to go. It wasn't political. Brother Jack probably wouldn't approve of it at all, but I had to keep on going as I could go. Listen to me, standing up on this so-called mountain, I shouted. Let me tell it as it truly was. You know, his name was Todd Clifton, and he was full of illusions. He thought he was a man when he was only Todd Clifton. He was shot for a simple mistake of judgment, and he bled, and his blood dried, and shortly the crowd trampled out the stains. It was a normal mistake of which many are guilty. He thought he was a man, and that men were not meant to be pushed around. But it was hot downtown, and he forgot his history. He forgot the time and the place. He lost his hold on reality. There was a cop and a waiting audience, but he was Todd Clifton, and cops were everywhere. The cop, well, what about him? He was a cop, good citizen, but this cop had an itching finger and an eager ear for a word that rhymed with trigger, and when Clifton fell, he had found it. The police special spoke its lines, and the rhyme was completed. Just look around you. Look at what he made. Look inside you and feel his awful power. It was perfectly natural. The blood ran like blood in a comic book killing on a comic book street in a comic book town on a comic book day in a comic book world. Todd Clifton's one with the ages. But what's that to do with you in this heat under the veiled sun? Now he's part of history, and he has received his true freedom. Didn't they scribble his name on a standardized pad? His race, colored, religion, unknown, probably born Baptist, place of birth, U.S., some southern town, next of kin, unknown, address, unknown, occupation, unemployed, 
cause of death be specific, resisting reality in the form of a 38 caliber revolver in the hands of the arresting officer on 42nd between the library and the subway in the heat of the afternoon of gunshot wounds received from two bullets fired at three paces, one bullet entering the right ventricle of the heart and lodging there, the other severing the spinal ganglia traveling down to lodge in the pelvis, the other breaking through the back and traveling God knows where. Such was the short, bitter life of Brother Todd Clifton. Now he's in this box with the bolts tightened down. He's in the box and we're in there with him. And when I've told you this, you can go. It's dark in this box and it's crowded. It has a cracked ceiling and a clogged up toilet in the hall. It has rats and roaches and it's far, far too expensive a dwelling. The air is bad and it'll be cold this winter. Todd Clifton is crowded and he needs the room. Tell them to get out of the box. That's what he would say if you could hear him. Tell them to get out of the box and go reach the cops to forget that rhyme. Tell them to teach them that when they call you nigger to make a rhyme with trigger, it makes the gun backfire. So there you have it. In a few hours, Todd Clifton will be cold bones in the ground. And don't be fooled, for these bones shall not rise again. You and I will still be in the box. I don't know if Todd Clifton had a soul. I only know the ache that I feel in my heart, my sense of loss. And I don't know if you have a soul. I only know that you are men of flesh and blood and that blood will spill and flesh grow cold. I do not know if all cops are poets, but I know that all cops carry guns with triggers. And I know, too, how we are labeled. So in the name of Brother Clifton, beware of the triggers. Go home, keep cool, stay safe away from the sun, forget him. When he was alive, he was our hope. But why worry over a hope that's dead? So there's only one thing left to tell, and I've already told you. His name was Todd Clifton. He believed in brotherhood. He aroused our hopes, and he died. Michael Harper is a professor of English at Brown University. His books include Dear John, Dear Coltrane, Debreedment, Song, I Want to Witness, History is Your Own Heartbeat, Nightmare Begins, Responsibility, 
and Images of Kin. He is winner of the Guggenheim Award and from awards from the National Institute for Arts and Letters and the Black Academy of Arts and Letters. Two books in particular are, of Michael's are of particular importance to me. Um, the two are Dear John, Dear Coltrane, and History is Your Own Heartbeat. In Dear John, Dear Coltrane, Michael Harper seemed to be able to give voice to a personal experience of a music that there are no words for. And in History is Your Own Heartbeat, he was able to teach me that if history is to mean anything, that it becomes important for each of us to not allow anyone to talk us out of our own version of our own lives. This evening, Michael Harper will be reading from the work of poet Robert Hayden. Michael Harper. I don't think anybody can follow that uh, performance that Gloria Foster just did. And so let me announce right now that uh, I don't intend to try and uh, rival what she's done, but I am going to tell Mr. Ellison. There is, a, there is a way in which the human voice brings alive the rhythms of prose um, in the church, among other places, and um, the rhetoric of what we shall call the American dream is probably best summarized in the rhetoric of many of the most eloquent black American preachers. And I was um, going to uh, read a sequence a little bit different than I am now because um, I recalled a poem that Mr. Hayden read years ago um, about a marvelous um, black American soul singer of the church. It's called Morning Poem for the Queen of Sunday. Lords lost him his mockingbird, his fancy warbler. Satan sweet talked her, four bullets hushed her. Who would have thought she'd end that way? Four bullets hushed her and the world of clang with evil. Who's gonna make old hardened sinner men tremble now in the righteous rock? Oh, who and oh, who will sing Jesus down to help with struggling and doing without and being colored all through Blue Monday till way next Sunday? All those angels in their cretone clouds and finery the true believer saw when she reared back her head and sang. All those angels are surely weeping. Who would have thought she'd end that way? Four holes in her heart, the gold works wrecked. But she looks so natural in a big bronze coffin among the broken hearts and gates ajar. It's as if any moment she'd lift her head 
from its pillow of chill gardenias and turn this quiet into shouting Sunday and make folks forget what she did on Monday. Oh, Satan sweet-talked her and four bullets hushed her. Lodge lost him his diva. His fancy warbler's gone. Who would have thought? Who would have thought she'd end that way? Now, Mr. Hayden was in many ways a genius of words, and uh, there's no celebration of uh, Black History Month. In my youth, it used to be Negro History Week. I'm hoping that I'm hoping that the promise of the 80s and 90s will make it just a whole year, and then just give it a whole year. <clears throat> Negro History Week used to begin on Lincoln's birthday, which was February 12th. <laughs> and it would end on Frederick Douglass's birthday, and nobody knew what it was, but they gave us a week. And so therefore, we assumed that the 19th of February was Frederick Douglass's birthday. And perhaps it was. Um, I'd like to tell you just a brief bit about Mr. Hayden's life and something about his struggles, something about his transcendences, and something about the resonance of his being here. Because anyone who reads his poems has to confront this vibrant personality. He was born in Detroit, Michigan. I'm reminded of Joe Lewis's stepfather, who used, to who used to describe Detroit as destroy. And he wasn't making a mistake in enunciation. He was just giving a connotative description of the process of uh, the Negro migration from the South, in large part, to the urban centers of the North. Hayden was born in poverty. He didn't describe his home as a ghetto. He would have called it a slum. But it was marvelously named. The section that he grew up in was called Paradise Valley. A freeway runs through it now. But I don't think that one can live in a finer namesake place than Paradise Valley. And there are numerous Paradise Valleys in America, places like Arizona and California and other places. He was in what we call the Save Your Sight program. He was a man who was deficient in eyesight, spent much of his life struggling to see the page, uh, the marvelous poems that he'd written down he oftentimes could not read. He wanted to play the violin and for a while uh, practiced the violin. Some way his extended family managed to put together the few dollars a week it took for lessons. Then he was forced to give it up. He served for a time on the Federal Writers Project. He showed his poems to Langston Hughes. Langston Hughes was one of the judges who was responsible for the Negro Prize at the World Festival in Dakar. And as a result of this prize, uh, Mr. Hayden got a certain kind of uh, notoriety, certainly among the black, black press. He went to Wayne State University when it was a college, and he was a Spanish major. So he discovered the Americas in literature long before many of the 
more fashionable writers of today did. He entitled one of his books, Angle of Ascent, after a story that Garcia Marquez wrote called A Very Old Man with Enormous Wings. In addition to that, he was an exquisite teacher, um, very exacting. His style was um, very urbane. I can remember uh, the many times when he was dragged over the coals of the 60s. I can remember when reviews were written and periodicals like uh, the Negro Digest, which became the black world, criticizing him for his rhetoric, not being able to discriminate between when he was creating a character and putting words in the character's mouth and what his own beliefs were. And all of the vicissitudes that happen to anybody who's fortunate enough or unfortunate enough to be born into America. Now, he managed to transcend many of his problems, but um, he didn't transcend all of them by any means. He had a continuous struggle with the self. I remember once when uh, he was consulting poetry at the Library of Congress, and he was the first Afro-American consultant at the Library of Congress, but he did not have a passport. And the reason for him not having a passport is because he did not have his name, which was Robert Hayden because he had been raised by a foster family but was actually Asa Sheffy, which he had no birth certificate for. And how much he agonized about not being able to get a passport if he went to um, what I call influx control. That's a South African term. The means whereby uh, you gain exit and entry into this marvelous republic of ours. And so I wrote a letter to Senator Brooke from Massachusetts. At that time, he was still in office. And he instantly wrote back and said, I will get on this today. Have Mr. Hayden call my office. And Hayden said, oh, Michael, I've been getting along without a birth certificate for so long. No point in ruining everything now. He said, I'm never going to go anywhere. He said, I'm going to be like the flying African uh, who doesn't fly home until he's dead. And he laughed. And I took it very seriously because uh, I thought he was giving a kind of uh, injunction about his own poetic future, and it disturbed me a great deal because Hayden didn't do enough work for us. He did a great deal of work for himself. We needed his words very badly. And um, he always cautioned me not to allow the academy, which is to say the world, from stopping one from doing one's work. And uh, I still haven't fully understood what he meant, but I have some idea about the struggles he was talking about, and I want to give you a kind of very brief survey, historically, of some of his great characters. The first is Crispus Attucks. All I'll say about Crispus Attucks is, is that <coughs> he is looked upon by many black Americans as being the first patriot in the long struggle, uh, this revolutionary war that we continue to fight for identity. And he was murdered in 1770. Crispus Attucks. Name in a footnote, faceless name, moot hero shrouded in Betsy Ross and Garvey flags, propped up by bayonets, forever falling. Now Hayden was a great formalist poet. He needed pattern and literary convention to frame his ideas and frame his language. 
but he was also a great innovator, and he didn't abide by these forms too tightly. At the same time, you could hear the echo of some of his wonder wondrous insights and some of his literary learning. This is a letter which Hayden wrote and put in the mouth of Phyllis Wheatley. Phyllis Wheatley is writing a letter from Phyllis Wheatley to a free woman of color in Boston named Ober Tanner, and the time is 1773 in London. Keep your ears pierced for references to predecessors, which is to say Pocahontas, and those who came after. Uh, also, uh, a literary figure named William Blake, who did some marvelous things with words. Dear Ober, our crossing was without event. I could not help at times reflecting on that first, my destined voyage long ago. I yet have some remembrance of its horrors and marveling at God's ways. Last evening, her ladyship presented me to her illustrious friends. I scarce could tell them anything of Africa, though much of Boston and my hope of heaven. I read my latest elegies to them. O oh, sable muse, the countess cried, embracing me when I had done. I held back tears as is my wont, and there were tears in dear Nathaniel's eyes. At supper, I dined apart like captive royalty. The countess and her guests promised signatures affirming me true poetess, albeit once a slave. Indeed, they were most kind and spoke, moreover, of presenting me at court. I thought of Pocahontas. An honor to be sure, but one I should no doubt as patriot decline. My health is much improved. I feel I may, if God so wills, entirely recover here. Idyllic England. Alas, there is no Eden without its serpent. Under the chiming complacence, I hear him hiss. I see his flickering tongue when foppish would-be wits murmur of the Yankee peddler and his cannibal mockingbird. Sister, forgive the intrusion of my somberness. Nocturnal mood I would not share with any save your trusted self. Let me disperse in closing such unseemly gloom by mention of an incident you may, as I, consider droll. Today, a little climp chimney sweep, his face and hands with soot quite black, staring hard at me, politely asked, does you, milady, sweep chimneys too? I was amused, but dear Nathaniel, ever solicitous, was not. I pray the blessings of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ be yours abundantly in his name, Phyllis. Now, no person who thinks a little about American literature can think about Phyllis Wheatley without thinking about Paul Lawrence Dunbar. And Hayden wrote a eulogy for Dunbar. He had made several pilgrimages to Dunbar's birth place, which was Dayton, Ohio.
and put the roses on Paul Lawrence Dunbar's grave and suited himself with never getting into his house. Paul Lawrence Dunbar. We lay red roses on his grave, speak sorrowfully of him as if he were but newly dead. And so it seems to us this raw spring day, though years before we two were born, he was a young poet dead. Poet of our youth, his creed the core our own, his verses in a broken tongue beguiling as an elder brother's antic lore. Their sad black face lilt and croon survive him like the happy look subliminal of victim dying man a summer's tintypes hold the roses flutter in the wind we weight their stems with stones then drive away now unless we get to um, samba Hayden had a great sense of humor and he had a great sense of how the world was full of irony and he told me that he used to, in the 50s, he began in the late 40s, I guess, to come to New York uh, for respite. He was then teaching at Fisk University, and he was trying to raise his daughter free of the confines of segregation in Nashville, Tennessee, which is impossible. He had been studying, and when Hayden mentioned the word studying, he meant reading with tremendous intensity because, as I mentioned, he could not read very easily because he had poor vision. He spent two or three years researching a cycle of poems which he said he was going to publish under the title The Black Spear, which is a reference to Stephen Vincent Monet's John Brown's Body. And though he never published this sequence of poems, he wrote many of them. Some of you uh, certainly know them. Middle Passage, Ballad of Nat Turner, Ballad of Sue Ellen Westerfield, Frederick Douglass, How Much of the Empress of the Blues. Anybody who has a, got a record player knows that How Much of the Empress of the Blues has got to be Bessie Smith. And as Baldwin had said when he was trying to finish his first novel, Go Tell It on the Mountain, that the thing that got him through the writing of that novel was the Bessie Smith record. And he used to listen to Backwater Blues over and over again which had lines like, my house fell down, and I can't live there no more. And she wasn't being sentimental. He was talking about the Mississippi flood in 1927. Baldwin said that gave him the cadence of speech necessary so that he could envision what his characters would sound like on the page. Well, Hayden could do miracles with dialogue. He wrote a play, which was lost, which we couldn't find, for the Moses of his people, Harriet Tubman. And he takes a stereotype, which many of us were raised on in the movies, and he transforms it. And the poem is called Aunt Jemima of the Ocean Waves. Enacting someone's notion of themselves and me, the one and only Aunt Jemima and Kokomo, the Dixie dancing fool, do a ballet for the freak show. I watch a moment, then move on, pondering the logic that makes of them and me confederates of the spider girl 
the snakeskin man. Poor devils have to live somehow. I cross the boardwalk to the beach, lie in the sand and gaze beyond the clutter at the sea. Trouble you for a light? I turn as Aunt Jemima settles down beside me, her blue rinsed hair without the red bandana now. I hold the lighter to her cigarette, much obliged. Unmindful, perhaps, of my embarrassment, she looks at me and smiles. You sure do favor a friend I used to have. Guess that's why I bothered you for a light. So much like him that I, she pauses, watching white horses rush to the shore. Wait in big old waves come slamming, whooping in. Sometimes it's like they mean to smash this no good world to hell. Well, it could happen. A book I read crossed that very ocean years ago. London, Paris, Rome, Constantinople too. I seen them all. Back when they billed me everywhere as the sepia high stepper, crowned heads applauded me years before your time, years and years. I wore me plenty diamonds then, and counts or dukes or whatever they were would fill my dressing room with the costliest flowers. But of course, there was this one you resemble so, get me? The sweetest gentleman, dead before his time, killed in the war to save the world for another war. High-stepping days for me were over after that. Still, I'm not one to let grief idle me too long. I went out with a mental act, mind reading, mysteria from the mystic east, Veils and beads and telling suckers how to get stolen rings and sweethearts back. One night he was standing by my bed, seen him plain as I see you, and warned me without a single word, baby, quit playing with spiritual stuff. So here I am, so here I am, fake mammy to God's mistakes, and that's the beauty part. I mean, ain't that the beauty part? She laughs but I do not, knowing what her laughter shields and mocks. I light another cigarette for her. She smokes, not saying anymore. Scream of children in the surf, adagios of sun and flashing foam, the sexual glitter, oppressive fun, an antique etching comes to mind. The sable Venus, naked, on a Baroque Cellini shell, voluptuous Simago floating in the wake of slave ships on fantastic seas. Jemima sighs. Reckon I'd best be getting back. I help her up. Don't you take no wooden nickels here. Ten dimes neither. So long, pal. Now, I mentioned uh, Bessie Smith, so I'd better read a poem. It's called Homage to the Empress of the Blues. Hayden is a great technician, and um, he does wonderful things with the sentence. And although this poem is uh, many lines long, there are only two sentences. 
because there was a man somewhere in a candy-striped silk shirt, gracile and dangerous as a jaguar. And because a woman moaned for him in 60-watt gloom and mourned him faithless love, two-time in love, oh love, oh careless, aggravating love, she came out on the stage in yards of pearls, emerging like a favorite scenic view, flashed her golden smile and sang. Because gray laughs began somewhere to show from underneath torn hurdy-gurdy lithographs of doll-faced heaven, and because there were those who feared alarming fists of snow on the door, and those who feared the riot squad of statistics, she came out on the stage in ostrich feathers, beaded satin, and shone that smile on us and sang. Peyton had a grandson, and uh, his name is Michael. And there are two Michaels mentioned in this poem, which was written for his grandson. Peyton was also a Baha'i, though he had been raised as a child in the Baptist church. And there's an allusion to the prophet of Baha'ism. Baha'u'llah, who was not named, but who was referred to. The year of the child for my grandson. And you have come, Michael Amman, to share your life with us. We have given you an archangel's name and a great poet's. We honor too Abyssinian Amman, hero of peace. May these names be talismans. May they invoke divine magic to protect you as we cannot in a world that is no place for a child, that had no shelter for the children in Guyana slain by hands they trusted, no succor for the Biafran child with swollen belly and empty begging bowl, no refuge for the child of the Warsaw ghetto what we yearned but were powerless to do for them, oh, we will dare, Michael, for you, knowing our need of unearned increments of grace. I look into your brilliant eyes, whose gaze renews, transforms each common thing, and hope that inner vision will intensify their seeing. I am content, meanwhile, to have you glance at me sometimes as though, if you could talk, you'd let us in on a subtle joke. May Huck and Jim attend you. May you walk with beauty before you, beauty behind you, all around you, and the most great beauty keep you his concern. I want to read two small poems. The first is a poem that Hayden wrote for his stepfather called Those Winter Sundays. Poem which um, has memorable lines. Poem ends with a rhetorical question. His father was an unlettered man who spent a, a good part of his life hauling coal, but who saw that Hayden had money for books. 
that he, were, he was able to uh, aspire beyond the slum that he lived in. He was also a man who uh, didn't talk much and was high on ceremony. And the poem ends with a word which connotes the French office, which is a very ceremonial word. And poor people of this time and place were very cer ceremonial, very, um, very elongated in the way in which they would populate their rituals. Those were of Sundays. Sundays, too, my father got up early and put his clothes on in the blue-black cold. Then, with cracked hands that ached from labor in the weekday weather, made banked fires blaze. No one ever thanked him. I'd wake and hear the cold splintering breaking. When the rooms were warm, he'd call. And slowly I would rise and dress, fearing the chronic angers of that house. Speaking indifferently to him who had driven out the cold and polished my good shoes as well. What did I know? What did I know of love's? austere and lonely offices. And I'll end with um, Hayden's great sonnet for Frederick Douglass. It's not an iambic sonnet. It's uh, a sonnet which I think is indebted to Hopkins. Hopkins was a person who uh, innovated a notion of sprung rhythm and sprung rhyme. And the poem is not rhyme, but it is sprung. And um, Frederick Douglass was called by Du Bois, the greatest man in the 19th century. And Du Bois was quite literate and knowledgeable about Lincoln. He did not think Lincoln was the most important man in the 19th century. He called the greatest man in the 19th century Frederick Douglass. I remember when Douglass said um, in a great speech that he gave on the 4th of July before slavery was declared illegal by the Emancipation Proclamation. My part has been to tell the story of the slaves, the story of the master never wanted for narrators. And the poem is called Frederick Douglass. It was published in the Atlantic in the 40s. When it is finally ours, this freedom, this liberty, this beautiful and terrible thing, needful to man as air, usable as earth. When it belongs at last to all, when it is truly instinct, brain matter, diastole, systole, reflex action, when it is finally won, when it is more than the gaudy mumbo-jumbo of politicians, this man, this Douglas, this former slave, this Negro beaten to his knees, exiled, visioning a world where none is lonely, none hunted, alien, this man's superb in love and logic, this man shall be remembered. Oh, not with statues' rhetoric, not with legends and poems and wreaths of bronze alone, but with the lives grown out of his life, the lives flushing his dream of the beautiful, needful thing.
Before we close, I'd like to make two announcements about uh, forthcoming Pan American Center events. Uh, this Thursday, February 28th, uh, there's going to be um, a symposium, eighth in a series, on um, the publishing industry, uh, entitled, My Aunt Just Called and There Are No Books in Cleveland, <laughs> How Your Publisher Sells Your Book, a clinic with chain, wholesale, and independent buyers and publishers and sales representatives. And that's going to be held at the Hayden Auditorium of the Greenwich House at 27 Barrel Street at 8 p.m. And on Sunday, March the 3rd, uh, the first International Pen Day of Writers for Peace reading with Diana Chong, Jerome Charn, Amy Clampett, Jane Cooper, Francis Fitzgerald, Richard Gilman, Allen Ginsberg, Oscar Huelos, Maurice Kenny, Arthur Copet, Norman Mailer, Grace Paley, and that will be hosted by Kirkpatrick Sale. And that will be at the uh, Penn headquarters at 568 Broadway, which is off of Prince Street and Broadway. And that's from 2 to 6 p.m. and it's free and open to the public. Uh, I want to again thank very much um, David Bradley, Gloria Foster, and Michael Harper for their very inspired reading this evening and invite you all to attend the reception in the lobby uh, after my remarks. Thank you very much. <laughs>